0: uplifter is a compelling leader who tries to breathe life and hope into people around them who listen and care and guide and help whose way of being in the world inspires who uplifts with humor and understanding who leads by example don't judge vulnerable determination. Who are here to create a better world. Who can learn and teach. Who encourages you. Who shines their light to lead other people.
1: Who uses their best self in order to help others. I found the life
0: that I liked
1: and I worked toward that. We are all uplifters. Big love. Welcome to the Uplifters podcast. I'm your host Aranza Savas, and today I'm joined by Gordon Bakulas. And Gordon has been a distance runner since 1978. She qualified for the U.S. Olympic marathon trials in 1988, 1992, 1996, 2000, and 2004. I mean. So start doing that math now to see how long her career has been. And she was a finalist at the 1992 U.S. Olympic 10,000 Meter Trials. She's represented the U.S. internationally at the 10K distance half marathon and marathon. At 62, she is still turning out crazy fast times. But that's not really even the most impressive thing about Gordon. The most impressive thing about Gordon is that I've had the opportunity now to talk to a number of people who have worked with Gordon, both in her day job as a New York Roadrunners editorial director and as a coach. And without fail, every person has described her in the same way. This remarkable, talented, gifted woman is described over and over again as the kindest, and most generous person they've ever known. And so today, I'm gonna chat with Gordon to understand both what it was like to be a pioneer. I'm pretty sure she doesn't even think of herself that way, but to be a pioneer in women's distance running and how she has now translated that to bring the joy of running to, well, directly and indirectly Probably millions of lives. Gordon, thank you for being here, and thank you for being you.
0: Aransas, thank you so much. I'm really, really honored to be on the Uplifters podcast, and really excited to talk to you and see you again. And thank you for that introduction. I feel humbled and and overwhelmed. So thank you so much. This is this is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Well, I am. I'm a little energized too by getting to chat with you. And you're just someone I've always admired and respected. And I think those are very different things, but uh, in your case, both are very true. And I just have always wanted to know more about this story. So can we start at the beginning of you falling in love with running? When and how did that happen?
0: Yeah, let's rewind. Let's go all the way back. As you said in your intro, I am 62 years old, uh, so let's do a little math. I was born in 1961, and I was an active kid. Back then, active little girls were called tomboys, so I was a tomboy. I loved not necessarily organized sports because, as you said or as you implied, there there were not a whole lot of opportunities for organized sports in any realm for, for little girls back in the 60s and early 70s. It's funny how you know you just sort of as a kid your your universe you just accept it, you know it's like I was aware that Little League was only for boys, so I just grew up playing you know like sandlot baseball and kickball and things like that, but then also games like kick the can and hide and seek and we we invented a game in our neighborhood that was my favorite. It was just called chase, and it was just that we Sometimes we'd play it in teams. Sometimes it would be like one individual and we would just, it was like organized running around. So we would just literally run around the neighborhood all day long playing, you know, organized and sometimes disorganized games. And I just loved that feeling. I did not get involved in running in an organized way till the very end of high school. I went out for track and immediately I I discovered I did have a talent for running and went all the way to the state meet in the 1500 I mean I was not like you know I didn't go beyond that at all you know I in the state meet I, I don't remember how I placed but it wasn't you know I wasn't a contender or anything but that was that was cool you know to you know because I was recognized for that at my high school in like local you know the local paper and things like that so that was that was kind of fun But yeah, as you said, that was 1978, 79. I graduated from high school in 1979. And there were not a lot of runners in general. And there were even fewer girls and women running. Not a lot of role models to look up to. But there were a few. Yeah, I don't think of myself as a pioneer so much as like, just like right behind the pioneers. It was like they kicked the doors open and I ran through. You know, it really... Felt like that, you know. Like, so the names that I had heard of in those days were Greta Weitz, of course, the great Greta Weitz, who ended up winning nine New York City Marathon titles, five New York Mini titles. She was someone who was on my radar, even though she wasn't an American, she was Norwegian, you know, she was like a superstar, and I'd, I'd heard of her. And then Along the way, I knew the name Joan Benoit, who became Joan Benoit Samuelson and went on to win an Olympic gold medal in the marathon in 1984, but very few others. And, you know, I was the best at my high school. So there was, you know, no one to really sort of chase on the local scene. But yeah, you know, looking back, I guess I guess I was pioneering, you know, the women, my the girls and women my age really were, you know, in the forefront.
1: And certainly locally. Yeah. Yeah. And who was championing you and encouraging you to keep going?
0: Yeah, that was interesting. My parents didn't quite know what to make of it. <laughs>
1: but I'm sure.
0: As I as I developed as a runner, my father was also getting into running. He ran the New York City Marathon in 1978, 1979, and 1980, and he got into running as he recovered from alcohol addiction. He'd been an active alcoholic through most of my childhood and became sober in 1975 and started running in the winter of 1976. So he was a little bit, I can't really say that he was my role model, but I was aware that he was a runner and he was using it in a very different way than I was. He was, you know, probably could have been talented and accomplished if he'd started younger, but Really was using it for recovery and to get through those those early months of sobriety, but yeah, and he revealed later that that his father had been a track runner track and cross country runner back in like the 1920s uh, college students, so there is running in the family on that side. My mom was she was a, she had been a tomboy as well as he comes her, but was not was not a runner during the time that I was getting involved with it. But they, they were they were encouraging, you know, they you know, certainly never stood in my way or said, you know, don't do that. That's that's you know, not feminine or, you know, and, and I knew girls whose whose mothers did tell them that, unfortunately, you know, that running was, um you know, there were crazy misconceptions back then about your uterus falling out, you know, and that just sounds so silly now, but it was actually talked about as if it were a real thing. So there were girls who either were told they shouldn't run or couldn't run. Or, and also the equipment was dreadful. The <laughs> shoes were horrible. You know, you, there were no decent running bras. And, you know, the shorts, everything was built for men's bodies, like skinny men. And so a lot of women really struggled with that. I had a skinny body just sort of naturally. So it wasn't that big a deal for me. But that was a huge barrier to, to some girls and women back then.
1: And did you ever feel a sense of societal resistance or um discouragement no, to keep going really. or were you just so yeah, talented yeah. that
0: people were like
1: this is awesome yeah it was more <laughs> i don't lie. get it but yeah. keep going
0: right yeah. exactly yeah like you know i don't understand it completely but yeah just do your thing and you know it was really this feeling of like riding a wave because the doors had been kicked open the barriers were falling and more and more people were running throughout the 70s. You know, 1972 was Frank Shorter winning a gold medal at the Munich Olympics. And that really you know, kicked off the running boom in this country in a lot of ways. But looking back, it was still a very insular. And honestly, there were a lot of barriers to inclusion. It was perceived as something for skinny white people and preferably fast skinny white people and that produced a lot of talent i mean american men and to a lesser extent women but not women weren't you know completely excluded and we were being included more and more there was a ton of talent you know the talent pool was was deep and there was just such a, an interest in it but there wasn't a whole lot of interest in in making the, the sport inclusive all races of all genders of all body types you know the the concept of of fitness running was catching on but it caught on first Probably among the people who needed it the least, if you if you understand, you know it really wasn't seen as something with people that people with disabilities could pursue. Uh, you know, as I said, that uh, people you know of all of all genders and ethnicities. I don't think there was out and out discrimination, just so much as there was lack of access and lack of understanding. Still, very much a
1: and lack of support for it, lack right? Of
0: support, yeah. I mean, if...
1: the proverbial sports bra continues across all of these.
0: I mean literal support was missing for women. And, you know, there was still a, you know, completely misguided sense of you know, white people are more naturally gifted as distance runners and black people are more natural. I mean, this is like sounds ludicrous to try to explain it now because it's completely not grounded in science. And, you know, it's completely based on racist tropes and assumptions that are, you know, just abhorrent. You know, it's hard to even say these things now, even though I, you know, I never bought into them. That was the culture, unfortunately. And and thankfully that's, that's changed very much over the last 50 years or so.
1: Yes. And especially, I feel like just over the last couple of years, there's mm-hmm. been a louder, a louder expression of it, more open yeah. conversation about it and therefore greater understanding. And hopefully some, it's like, I'm I'm still picturing Joni ripping the doors open and you choosing to go through them to go through them but but having that choice because there I'm sure a lot of people who didn't choose to go through them but you couldn't have until the doors were open right Right. and and I think there's been an opening of the doors and now it's people trying to get through those doors but Mm -hmm. it is there's still a lot of disparity in terms of access and support.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a story that, that Joan Benoit Samuelson tells of, you know, when she first started running and she's four or five years older than I am, you know, not that much older, that she would, you know, be running along a little road in rural Maine. And, you know, when a car came by, she would stop and pretend that she was picking flowers or picking up trash or something like that. Like she, you know, it was okay to be out there in sh- wearing shorts or whatever but not running as as a high schooler you know young young adult young girl and that's that's something i never experienced again i didn't experience discrimination but looking back i'm able to see how you know there were many many more boys and men who ran than than girls and women you know by a factor of 10 or 20 fold and that's just the way it was but again nobody ever told me you're a girl, you shouldn't run ever. You know, I just did not hear that. I was, it was encouragement.
1: And what does that ratio look like now?
0: Oh, it's, there's, I mean, in road racing, you know, recreational racing, women outnumber men in, in road racing. And it's, I think like 60%, uh, these are figures from Running USA, you know, who keeps track of, of the road racing industry. You know, 60% of finishers overall at all distances are, are female, identify as female. In the marathon, I think it's still slightly skewed toward, uh, runners who identify as, as male rather than, than female, but it's, it's approaching 50-50. I don't know the figures for like scholastic, but you know, I, I would venture to guess, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's close to equal, if not equal numbers of girls and boys in high school are involved in running. And that wasn't the case
1: when, when I was in high school.
0: Or in college.
1: That's really encouraging for the other doors that are being opened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're,
1: you and others are opening another door that we haven't even talked about, which is running competitively. I like don't even know where to draw the line as masters, right? Wherever that happens, we'll yeah. say that. I was going to say post-menopause. I was going to no, say- No, no, no. All of older, the above. All, yep. Yeah.
0: None, so, of those are, none of those are wrong. Yes. Yes. That's very, very exciting. And that, I mean, we owe so much credit to, you know, I've worked at New York Roadrunners for over 20 years and we we really- Not single-handedly, but you know, New York Roadrunners was played a huge role in that, and specifically, our founder, our president, Ted Corbett, just really believed in running being a lifetime sport, Um, and you know, not just paying lip service to that, you know, not just saying, yeah, of course, you know, you can run for your whole life, you know, setting up structures that allowed and encouraged people of all ages to compete against their peers, so you know, age group awards, you know, that was not a thing at all until Ted Corbett made it a thing in the in the 60s and early 70s. It was just sort of generally expected that you'd gradually fade away after not even 40, you know, 35 was considered like, what are you still doing out here? You know, <laughs> you're, you're not going to, you know, it was sort of like, if you're not going to get any faster, what's the point? You know, and that was, that just increased the insularity and the, you know, sort of elite nature, even of, you know, so-called recreational running. And that was unfortunate, you know, because running can do, I mean, I could go on all day about the, the, you know, the benefits of running and why everyone should run. But, you know, certainly, yeah, getting faster, setting lifetime PRs, that's very, PRs is personal records, you know, the best, the fastest you've ever run for a particular distance is, that's exciting. And when runners are, you know, getting started and every race is faster than the one before, that's, that's a very heady period. But for anybody, that does not last forever. And you know if that's your only motivation, eventually you're going to become frustrated and disappointed. So why not set up a system where you you can continue to compete if that's what you choose to do and do so against your peers, your age graded peers, and you know have have excitement around competing with people in in your age bracket. And now there's a whole system of age graded results, you know, you get a certain percentage or a percentile if you achieve a certain a certain time. So I'm that's what keeps me motivated.
1: What do you attribute your longevity as your the speed, the longevity of your speed to?
0: I guess I had a coach who was very, very good early on Um, when I did get involved in adult running here in, in New York City. There was a women's team called Atalanta, and I was recruited to, to join it after I had some good performances at the mini and other races. And yeah, Bob was, you know, a really sensible coach. He said, you know, don't race too often within your races and workouts. Don't go out too fast. You know, if you feel niggles, you know, deal with them before they become injuries. So I, you know, I really internalized all that.
1: I suspect it's also because you have a natural tendency to see the positive. You you seem to be an optimist by nature.
0: I am, but a realist as well. You know, I'm not, I mean, yeah, we all go through a stage of denial when we, when we know we're injured. You know, it's like, no, I'm not injured. It's just, I'm just tired. I'm just this, I'm just that. Denial is definitely one of the. The stages that injured runners go through. I had a uh, really bad plantar fasciitis in both feet for about a year. And yeah, I just learned that injuries do heal. You know, you, once you've gotten through the denial, you go through the stage of like, that's it. You know, my career is over. I'll never run again. But that's not true. You know, injuries heal. The body heals. You know, we've, we've been dealing with, you know, we, we evolved as running creatures and you know, nobody ever died of plantar fasciitis.
1: I'm smiling because I've just been through I'm a sure two and a half relate. year <laughs> bout of plantar fasciitis. Oh, we've all
0: been there. <laughs> it yeah, was my that's...
1: longest injury ever. And it was my longest break and the best thing that ever happened to my body in some oh, ways.
0: Oh, that's good too. That's true. That that happens. You you redefine, you stop fighting yourself at yeah. a certain point. Yeah. You know, you, you just make peace with your body and you... Uh, I'm not trying to interpret your situation, but I found that I learned to love myself anyway. It's like, I have an injured body, but I still love my body. And I love myself. Was that your experience?
1: Yeah, it was really hard at first, of course, and I couldn't run. And I tried and I'd push it and I'd aggravate it and I'd push it. and Right. And so I didn't have the, I didn't have other options for myself. I Mm -hmm. finally realized Mm -hmm. that I had put all of my endorphin eggs in one basket. And so I finally set up a system of support to learn how to really lift weights. And that's great. It was like a whole new world opening up. Because I was able to discover all these different things my body could do. And so now I'm finally easing back into running with so much more joy, so much more strength, so much more agility. And I just feel like, whoa, that had I not gotten the plantar fasciitis, I would never have left running. I would have just kept going and kept trying But this forced me into a new path that really strengthened the whole foundation. So it, like so many challenges, led to something far greater.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a really inspiring story. You had to have
1: had some moments. Mm -hmm. I just imagine a frustration along the career that you've had. I mean, you talk about it's been over 30 years since you were turning in your lifetime PRs. How did you manage those moments where you're like, oh, I'm not getting faster any longer. How did you sort of shift that in your mind to focus on what was possible in the next generation or the next chapter of your journey?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's there's several parts to that answer. One is because by the time that period of my life came along, we're talking, we were in the early 90s, there was a big supportive women's, elite running community, you know, there was a real critical mass of people. And again, those pioneers that I spoke of earlier, particularly Greta Weitz and Joan Benoit Samuelson, I could look to them and many others and see that they were slowing down too. So, you know, even though they were slowing down from, you know, a higher level than I was, I was, you know, not that far behind them. And I could see, okay, they're managing this with with grace, with, and they're finding other ways to fulfill themselves. So it was, it was that having others that I could look to and say, yeah, it's happening to them. This isn't something that the universe is singling me out for, you know, to abuse, you know, by saying, haha, you're never going to run fast again, or you're never going to be as fast in the future as you were in the past. Um, I could see it happening and to men as well. You know, it's a universal thing. It's not, it's not unique to, to women runners. I felt like, this is this is what happens and you can still get after it and so that was the second thing that there were still many many competitive opportunities and i was able to take advantage of them i always enjoyed the recognition and i appreciated it but you know it was really sort of secondary to the feeling that I wanted in myself of, okay, I'm out there just trying my best and, you know, like blowing the cobwebs out every time I crossed, you know, uh, crossed the starting line and cross the finish line. So I was able to accept it. And then also I had gotten into coaching by that point. I started dabbling with coaching in the late 80s and really got into it in the early 90s and just started to find so much fulfillment from coaching both individuals and and groups, and just seeing people at all different fitness levels, all different stages of their own running journey, and with running playing a different role in their lives. You know, everyone has their own story of how running has, has impacted their life, and I just found that those interactions and those stories, and the challenge and pleasure of helping people on their journey, really, really engaging. So I was able to, to put more energy into that over the years.
1: It seems like there's a really powerful three-step process in there, which is normalizing the shift and the transition by seeing how it happens in others, tuning into what genuinely ignites you, about this process that is not sort of the external validation and reward, but that inner fire of clearing the cobwebs and the feeling that comes with running and paying attention to that and then turning your attention to others and to using your own experience to have impact And when I talk to uplifters and at this point, and I've showed this in other episodes, I've I've surveyed thousands of uplifters about what it means to live up. And it always boils down to those three things. It says, be well, we connect deeply and we leave a positive impact. And I hear so much of that really in, in your process for coming to a place of acceptance for this very natural progression in your journey. And I think so, so often where we get stuck is we, we hold on to what was to the feeling of, well, in the past, it looked like and felt like this. And you really ease through to, ah, this is what's here for me now. Right.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Thank you so much for articulating that. Because I never articulated it until this moment as a, a three-step process, but it it really is. And it's just sort of a marvel to me to look back on my relationship with running over the years and feel how different it is now from 40 years ago, you know, when I was first getting started. I just feel like I was so selfish. I was so, (laughs) you know, I mean, and, and part of that is just aging. You know, you during this time, I also had children and, you know, I lost my parents and you just see that life is bigger than, you know, whether you break 33 minutes in the 10 K, you know, it's like so much bigger than that. Your whole perspective just broadens and deepens. And so, yeah, there is an arc to it and there is a process to it, even if I didn't fully realize that at at the time. And in many ways I'm, I'm happier now as a runner, I'm so much slower, but much, much more in tune. I'm in tune with my body. I'm in tune with my psyche And just that, that sharing and giving back was more fulfilling than I ever could have imagined. You know, I could not have imagined any of that when I first stepped into running at all and then stepped into competitive running. But here, here we are.
1: Here we are. And I know now you are focused on coaching mostly women over 40.
0: I am. Yeah. How do
1: you guide them? What do they, what do they most need from you?
0: Uh, Well, how how I guide them is any runner, you know, but but especially women 40 and over, I feel like we, we just need to listen to each other. So it's just, yeah, listening without judgment. And yeah, just, you know, being a support. A lot of people at all levels need to be told what not to do. You know, it's like, you just ran a really hard race. Do not go out and do another workout the next day. (laughs) Oh, but I feel so great. (laughs) Like, no, 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 just rest, you know, take a walk, do some yoga, maybe, you know, go for a swim, but don't go out and do a hard workout. Again, as I said, at, at all levels, you know, certainly the, the best runners in the world are known for, you know, they, their coaches to say, my job with this person is to make sure they don't literally run themselves into the ground.
1: Yeah. I was once told that the best way to find the right therapist is to find the one who can really listen to you. And I think that's true for all of the people who who we hire to support us. So to find the coach, the trainer, the therapist, the doctor who you feel can hear you because not everyone is able to do that. Some people are so focused on their expertise or their assumptions that they can't really hear you. And I think what you're describing it's the essence of you. And it's why people describe you as being so kind and generous. Mm -hmm. You've shown them that through listening and hearing.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. What you what you say, I also think that sometimes as a coach or an expert in any field, we think that what people are looking for is expertise, and they are, you know, you wouldn't want someone to perform heart surgery on you that wasn't an expert heart surgeon in a sort of different realm, you wouldn't want someone to coach you to run a fast marathon who had never had success in the marathon. But coaches can't fix everything. And also, it has to be within the runner, you know, the runner has to have the, the desire, the motivation, and the ability to achieve what they are dreaming of. Um, and so the, the coach is, is a facilitator of that. Um, But the coach, even the most expert coach in the world, can't solve every problem that the runner is going to encounter along the way.
1: I think this idea of coaching with acceptance is something that cultivates acceptance in the athlete or the person being coached. And to me, that is my observation about racing, having been at this for 20 years and spent a lot of time with a lot of runners, there are a lot of people who train really well. Mm -hmm. And they are so fast and so free in training and then they get to race day and consistently don't turn out races that are aligned with their training. And my belief is that in racing, people get into a sense of fear. And I've certainly experienced fear in races. And we start to think about all the things that could go wrong. And I remember very vividly the marathon I trained for with you. There was a train track that crossed the course.
0: I remember that.
1: And I became obsessed with the possibility of this train crossing my path. And so mentally... It was draining, but physically it was draining because I was releasing all these fear hormones into my body and there's nothing that creates exhaustion faster. And so for me, the, when things really turned around, it was when I decided to run with just full joy and acceptance of what is. And the second I started to do that, racing became so pleasurable and I raced way faster than I trained
0: which is what we want. That's a good story. Cause that was, that was inside you all along that ability to do that. I but was the, holding the fear, me back. Yeah. You were holding yeah. yourself back. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, and even as you say physically, cause you know, on race day, it's like, Oh, I want to speed up. So I, you know, beat the train. Up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 No, it's hard. It's hard, but it's hard not to, I mean, you know, I get into my whole, you know, marathons are like life (laughs) because it's hard not to live your life in fear sometimes, you know, because there's so many things can go wrong. But yeah, if you just try to live as joyfully as you can, you know, and, and in in expectation that, you know, things are gonna happen. Yes, things are absolutely gonna happen. And and you're you're not wrong. Like that train could have messed up your race, but Would you have had the ability? Any control? No control, but you would have dealt with it. You know, you would have just gotten to the train tracks, waited for the train to go by, and then continued on with your race. And who knows what would have? It could have helped.
1: You right? It was certainly more helpful than flooding my system with stress and fear. With stress,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So true. Yeah, just yeah. If I can impart that to people, that. Look things are gonna go are gonna happen on race Day that you've prepared for, and things are gonna happen probably that you haven't prepared for. You, know, you could fall, you could miss a water station it there could be a thunderstorm, you could pee your pants I mean anything could happen you
1: know. i mean I think I've done all of those
0: I, mean, right? yeah, I certainly have, but you'll deal with it, you know <laughs> you will whatever happens. And that's true in life as well. You know, our kids could fail a test, or not get into the right college, or you know, lose their job, or whatever. And life you'll
1: deal goes with on. it. Yeah, you'll deal with it. You'll learn. What wisdom, at Gordon? As I said, I have asked a lot of folks um, what it means to live up, and I wanted to ask you those three questions. What do you do in addition to running to care for
0: your well-being? Lots of things, and and more and more over time. I mean, that's again another thing that my early days in life and in running, I I didn't do enough of. Um, I just have always had incredible endurance, and you know, have just plowed through. Um, and I I'm more cognizant now that that's that's not always sustainable or healthy or the right thing to do. So I build in relaxation. I try just little things, like I try to walk home every day you know, as long as the weather's good, and really use that time to decompress, to just kind of do nothing other than than walk. Um, sometimes I'll listen to a podcast, yay, or music or something, but sometimes I'll just be and just be me walking through Riverside Park. Um, very very lucky again that I live in a place where I can do this, where it's safe, you know, where I feel, you know what we take as nature in and I feel you know I I have access to beautiful spaces so I do that I nurture relationships especially with my husband who have been married for 27 years and you know, he's my best friend and uh, my greatest source of, of support and uh and love um and other relationships how do I do that I just stay connected my relationships with my siblings and friendships. Um, I'm very blessed to have a group of friends I've known since high school. And as a pandemic gift, we really, we all reconnected in the spring of 2020. And we've been doing a weekly Zoom call ever since. There's 10 of us, not all 10 of us get on the call every week, but it's just, it's always there. You know, we, we, we stay connected through that and um, really support each other. We laugh together. We dance. We, it's, it's incredible. And then running, you know, running is, is a huge, you know, and, you know, running that doesn't involve speed work or racing or coaching, just, you know, running as, as therapy. So those are the main practices for me.
1: What do you hope your legacy will be, Gordon?
0: What I want is everyone who chooses to, to be able to realize the benefits of running, whatever running means for them. I see myself as a lifetime runner but that doesn't mean that my running will always look like it looks today, you know, putting on a singlet and shorts and running shoes and going out and moving moving through space. That's how it looks now. I'm still, you know, taking one foot off the ground at a time. But yeah, my running could evolve into something a lot slower, a lot less frequent um and, you know, maybe more of a, a walk, what would look more like a walking practice yeah I just wanna to continue to create a world where everyone has that opportunity you know regardless of skin color or body type or gender gender expression, and you know where everyone feels welcome um you know it's it's easy to say running is for everybody, and runners have always said that or you know i've always i've the running community that I've been a part of has always said that, but it's a different thing to actually welcome all different people into the running space so I hope that's part of my legacy that I've, that I've made running as, as inclusive and accessible as it can possibly be. Well, I know
1: there is one and I am one of the many, many, many beneficiaries of it. Thank you for your time today. And thank you even more so for all of you, all you have done for women runners, runners in second half of life and people.
0: Thank you this has been such a great conversation. For all of you listening,
1: thank you as well for all that you do. From this conversation, I hope you find some little reminder to take care of yourself as well as you take care of everyone else. I'll see you over at theuplifterspodcast.com where you'll find more about Gordon as well as lots of other uplifters along with research tips and ideas for living your best life. Let's keep rising higher together. Thank you for listening to the Uplifters podcast. If you're getting a boost from these episodes, please share them with the uplifters in your life and then Join us in conversation over at the Uplifterspodcast.com. Head over to Spotify Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast and like follow and rate our show. It'll really help us connect with more uplifters and it'll ensure you never miss one of these beautiful stories. Mwah. Big love. Painted water sunshine with Rosemary and tonne Dwell in the perplexing, though you find it vexing. Toss a star and hover. Be your own best lover. Relish in a new prime. Plant a tree in springtime. Dance with idle hindsight. Bring the sun to twilight. Lift you up,
0: whoa. Lift you up. Oh, lift you up, lift Lift you up. Right in the pre-chorus, uh, right? Uh-huh. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Mommy, I stop crying! Cry. Cry. <laughs> Mommy, stop crying! You're disturbing the peace."